It's the B word on the programme this week. No, no, not Brexit, blackgrass. It's pleasing to see, you know, with some of the farmers that we're working with, that they are now starting to change their practices because of, yeah, because they have to. More on that new Rothamsted research in a moment. There is that other B word as well. Uh, we can't escape it. Presuming it happens, what opportunities might there be for crop protection? We're looking for the opportunities within Brexit. There's a lot of, you know, pessimism, but, you know, we've got to look at what the opportunities are and try and remain optimistic. And later we report from the NIAB TAG conference with water quality on the agenda. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. Let's start with the weather. Not the forecast. We'll do that later as usual. But the cold snap and uh, what effect it's having in the field. It is going to be a little milder this coming week. But as our agronomist Sean Sparling has been saying over the past couple of weeks, we need some rain. And we need it now. Hello, Sean. Enjoying the cold? Yes, morning, Sean. Well, that's what happens in winter, isn't it? That's what we get this time of year. Um, a little dusting of snow on the ground on Friday morning up here in Lincolnshire. Not a lot. Certainly not as much as they had down in the southwest and in Wales. And certainly not as bad as they're experiencing over the water in Chicago, where I understand the warning is that don't go outside in minus 30 degrees, because if you breathe in and out, the the water that you breathe in may set as ice and damage your lungs. I mean, you know how when it's getting cold, when it's like that. And I think the coldest I've ever experienced was about minus 18 in 2011's winter. So it minus five Wednesday into Thursday, it was cold. It didn't get above freezing. I think the warmest it got to on Thursday with me was minus two. Um, so we get what we get. What it does is it slows down the pests. It slows their metabolism down. They stop doing any damage. It also slows down things like diseases. So we get septoria on the leaf. We can find mildew we've got yellow rust out there in the field as i've said before but don't get carried away with the fact you get a few frosts that'll solve your problems with disease it won't it will only kill yellow rust for example if it gets cold enough to physically kill the leaf that the yellow rust is on so at best all it's going to do is stop those diseases getting any worse and as i've said before the thing to do is monitor them work out where they are get your plan in place ready to react once the spring campaign begins and once that t0 timing is upon us and conditions are right for fungicides but it won't solve all the problems what it does is it puts everything into slow motion so there is nothing to worry about and panic about now in terms of um, agronomy it's going to be quite short and sweet this week do you need to be going out putting nitrogen and sulfur on oilseed rate i think it's a bit early speak to your advisor remember that now is the time to put the sulfur on at this first timing i don't mean now i mean the first application of nitrogen sulfur wants to be sulfur because it takes five weeks for the sulfur to go through all the chemical changes it takes to get into the plant itself because it only goes in through the roots therefore it needs to be on middle of February to be ready for stem extension which happens around the end of March early April depending on day degrees so your first application of nitrogen wants to contain sulfur and it wants to go on middle part of February I think you're too early for that at the moment is it too early to be thinking about nitrogen on cereal crops yes I think it is with the conditions such as they are these crops are in tick over if you were to put nitrogen on now in these conditions cold looks prolonged cold it looks dry if it came wet it would flush that nitrogen straight through the soil profile and there'd be a faint whooshing noise as it shot past the roots and you've wasted your money so for me i think you're too early to be doing things like that another two or three weeks things may look very different but at the moment take it week on week and i wouldn't it's not too early to be putting things like phosphate potash magnesium those sort of compound fertilizers on take that opportunity now while it's frozen ground while you can 
travel without making a mess. Is it too early to drill spring wheat and spring barley? No, I've said that before. Um, but if it is the reason you're putting spring wheat and spring barley in is to control black grass in the rotation, then it probably is. You could do with a little bit of milder weather to get a flush of black grass growing off. Take that out with glyphosate before you put the spring barley, spring wheat into those black grassy fields. On the other hand, yes, if the conditions are right, you could drill spring wheat and spring barley. Is there any point in putting the nitrogen on in the seedbed? I've had that question asked to me several times this week. And the answer to that question is, well, yes, but now we're into February, of course you can, but don't go overboard with it. I certainly wouldn't put half of the nitrogen on, maybe somewhere 30 to 50 kilos of nitrogen um, applied to the seedbed at this time of year. Because if it, again, if it came wet and it flushed through, the crop won't get a chance to pick it up and you've wasted it. And there's only so much you can put on because of NMAX, etc. Um, if Is it too early to drill peas and linseed? Absolutely too early to drill peas and linseed. Is it too early to drill sugar beet? For me, yeah, I think it's too early to drill sugar beet. Um, but is it not too early to drill beans? I think you could get beans in the ground. Remember, if you're going to do that, for goodness sake, get your herbicide on, get that pre-em on. But you know your farms, you know your fields, you know the conditions, you know what will happen if it comes wet on some of these fields. So, Treat each field on its own merit. Speak to your advisor and formulate a plan. Because at the end of the day, we all need a plan. If you've got a plan, you can change it. But as far as everything else goes, it's a bit tick over at the moment. It's the calm before the storm. You can feel it coming. I'm still praying for a seriously wet February. And remember, that phrase February Fildike isn't about how wet February is. It's how wet February needs to be. Because it will fill the dikes, which then help sustain the crops through the, the year because we know there's enough moisture in the seed bed, capillary action will draw it up. What we don't want is a seriously dry February. I ended up with 17.5 millimetres of rain in January, and that is the driest I have ever registered. So what we were saying about 2018 being more like 1975 with a dry winter to follow, 1976 was the year that caused a lot of crop problems with yields and I'm just hoping we get some rain and rain enough to make sure we're not in that boat come harvest 2019. Let's hope not. Thank you Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. Now can we talk blackgrass? It's one of farm's biggest irritations and a subject we have covered many times here on the farming programme. Rothamsted have recently completed some new research into the issue so can it help fight against blackgrass? Paul Neve is Principal Research Scientist at Rothamsted. Yeah, so we, over the last four years, we've been working across 70 farms to monitor blackgrass populations and really understand, working with the farmers on those farms, understand you know, where they're at with resistance, how much blackgrass they've got on their farm, and, and you know how, how their management is impacting those things. Any surprises from what you've learned? Um, I think what, you know, what what we found is there are massive levels of resistance um yeah we we it's pleasing to see you know with some of the farmers that we're working with that they are now starting to change their practices because of yeah because they have to basically because so so yeah we we see some promising trends in terms of what farmers are doing with their black rust problems and we, and we also see a number of farmers who really are getting on top of those problems you know and not not through herbicides but through you know alternative non-chemical management yes uh, we are oh always talking about you know what other options there are out there instead of glyphosate yeah. there are more and more ideas coming forward now because of trials like this yeah i mean i you know ideally and at rothamsted we're, we're sort of hoping to work on sort of brand new solutions for black rust control but there aren't any of those at the moment so really the solutions are around 
you know, wider crop rotations, more spring crops, and just thinking about how you can grow your crops in a way that, you know, disadvantages blackgrass, if you like. Um, also some people doing some novel stuff with cover crops and tillage. And so currently it's really around just sort of changing the system to try and get on top of blackgrass. A lot of use still of glyphosate, isn't there? Yeah. And it has it risen quite a lot. Be, still being used carefully, I should add. But uh, there is a fear, therefore, of resistance because of overuse of glyphosate. Yeah, I think it's something that we certainly have to keep an eye on. Glyphosate is a fantastic herbicide. It's, it's great. You know, it provides excellent control for blackgrass. Um, you know, and, and it will continue to be a really crucial, well, as long as we don't lose it to regu- regulation, it will continue to be a key, a key tool. But I think, you know, we, we do have to be aware from looking in, around other places in the world where glyphosate resistance has evolved, that if we keep on increasing glyphosate use, we may also run into resistance problems there. So we just, we just need to bear that in mind as we think about using glyphosate in the future. So you, you're obviously 71 farms involved in this mm-hmm. trial. Using all of that data, all that mm-hmm. information, sharing information is the key really, isn't it? We think so, yeah. We think, you know, in, in terms of going forward in the future, there's, there's a great potential for sort of setting up these farm networks where we can study these problems and get farmers to share their data. And, and you know, because there's, there's much more value in, you know, one farmer's data is valuable, but if we can aggregate all that data and, and really understand how blackgrass is being managed across a diversity of farms that gives us a lot more insight which we can then hopefully share with farmers. Paul Neve, Principal Research Scientist at Rothamsted. Now we touched there on the use of some pesticides in the battle against not just blackgrass but other issues that harm our crops. Uh, presuming Brexit happens and of course it's been yet another turbulent week in Parliament. Uh, should it go ahead as planned at the end of March, does it offer opportunities for farming? Chris Hartfield is the NFU's Senior Regulatory Affairs Advisor. He believes there could be when the UK takes back control of its own pesticide regulations. Some of those key opportunities are around things like um, timescales, reducing the timelines uh, that it takes to assess new pesticides and do the approvals work. And The real benefit that we have in the UK is that our regulator, CRD, is very efficient compared to uh, a lot of regulators in the rest of Europe. It already does the lion's share of pesticide regulatory work in Europe and we need to harness that. If we could harness that then we can significantly reduce timelines. Say for example we had a a new pesticide that was bought um, by one of these uh, chemical manufacturers and wanting to put it on the market. They could put their dossier into the UK at the same time as they put their dossier into the EU. And basically we're pretty convinced that the UK regulator could get through that assessment work in probably less than half the time of the EU which means it could be on the market, in the hands of farms and growers, giving them a competitive advantage in the UK, maybe two or three years before their counterparts in the EU. Timing is crucial, isn't it, in this kind of issue? Yeah, no, absolutely. Timing is crucial. And, you know, it's about, you know, we're looking for the opportunities within Brexit. There's a lot of, you know, pessimism, but, you know, we've got to look at what the opportunities are and try and remain optimistic. And, you know, we've got a good regulator in the UK. They're very science and evidence-based. They're very efficient. And, you know, we need to harness those opportunities. And we need to do some more kind of proactive more um, thinking outside the box as well, horizon scanning work, looking at what the potential problems are 
looking at the gaps that we have in our crop protection toolbox, how we could plug those gaps going forward and just take a bit more of a holistic view to crop protection within the UK. What about uh, engaging with the, the public? Obviously you say the word pesticide or chemicals or glyphosate and suddenly you know, people are fearful and thinking, oh, what's going into our food? But actually you know, that's not the case, is it? Well, I mean, we are, everyone will say, you know, there's a bit of review going on at the moment in Europe of the current pesticide regulation. And no matter what side of the fence you sit on, you know, one of the first things that all organisations acknowledge is that we within Europe have got the strictest regulatory regime in the world. You know, and we should be very proud of that. And there's a huge amount of regulation and there's a huge amount of controls in place to ensure that the food that consumers buy is safe. And the fundamental fact is that at the moment, for the majority of that food, pesticides play a very important role in that food production process. And it's through that that we have you know, a really fantastic variety of food available, uh, and that it's safe, that it's affordable, and it's plentiful, and it's on you know, supermarket shelves 24-7. Issues like blackgrass, flea beetle, they all need dealing with, don't they? We've got to deal with them, otherwise that food won't be there. Yeah, I mean, we, we continue to lose different pesticides for a variety of different reasons. And what people need to remember is actually, we may lose the pesticide, but we don't lose the pest. The pest still remains. So in the absence of that pest, in order to be able to grow that crop um, economically, for it to make business sense to produce it in the UK, then we need to continue to have really effective ways to control those pests because the very real risk is what we do otherwise is that we just export that production elsewhere we export it possibly to other EU countries that have you know other different pesticides available that we don't have in the UK or more likely we export it just outside of the EU but we then continue to import that food we will continue to import that food that has been produced with the pesticides that our farmers and growers are no longer able to use. And all that would be done legally, all that would be done safely. But clearly, you know, that is not a very logical, sensible thing for the UK to be doing in terms of um, food production and sustainability and increasing the amount of British food that we actually grow here in the UK. That's Chris Harfield, the NFU's Senior Regulatory Affairs Advisor there. Last week on the programme, we discussed biobeds, one way of keeping our waters clean of chemicals. Well, earlier this week, water quality was among the topics at the NIAB TAG conference held at the Lincolnshire Showground. Andrew Ward chatted with John Cussons at the conference and the effects hardness and pH can have on herbicide deficiency. Certainly there are potential impacts on a whole range of herbicide chemistry mm -hmm. uh, in the the hardness, which is actually cations in solution, so positively charged ions in solution, if you remember your O-level chemistry, these can bind to the herbicide and deactivate the herbicide. So that's hardness having a direct impact on the, the herbicide performance. And this is the material we probably think most about in terms of that is glyphosate. Uh, but also changing the pH of the mix, so making the mix more alkaline, can also have a, an impact by hydrolyzing, breaking up herbicides in solution, or ionizing, binding with the herbicides, which change their performance. So we know there's a whole range of potential physical chemistry impacts of having water hardness and or changes in pH in the spray mix. The question that we really want, need to address, I think, and we want to address over the next couple of years is how does that 
potential impact play out in practice. Mm. And do, 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 um, does this affect just herbicides or is it insecticides and fungicides No, as well? no. So there's a whole range of, of plant protection products across um, some fungicides and, and insecticides in particular where both of these factors, both the, the alkalinity, the pH that you're changing in the water spray and the hardness, it's introducing cations, can potentially impact on performance. But as I say, we know these potential impacts from basic chemistry. The challenge for us is always how is this going to play out in practice and then when, when we start looking at, at, at the products that we're buying some of them already have bufferness and conditioners built into them don't they when when we arrive on the farm with a can yes exactly so that's the, the i guess part of the challenge in terms of how it plays out in practice because we're buying formulated products mm. we're not buying active ingredients we're we're buying formulated products and if you think about something like glyphosate when we talked about hardness being an issue you may well be applying three litres a hectare of the formulated product um, in which there's an awful lot of ability to buffer and, and, and counteract the effect of hardness. If you were to introduce a water conditioner, you may well be using something like 25 to 50 mil. So we need to work out how these formulated products are performing rather than worry about these potential physical chemistry problems. And what are the sort of readings and levels in the water that we need to be looking at or should be concerned about? I think, uh, I mean, it's pretty early days. We're, we're doing a bit of a survey at the moment, which we're then going to go on and look at efficacy. But certainly, if you have um, typically on-farm private borehole supplies and you're looking at, at water hardness, there's calcium carbonate equivalents, parts per million of calcium carbonate, of over 500, uh, you should be aware that there's probably an issue around your... Um, the water you're using having an impact on your pesticides. Some of these borehole samples are coming back at over a thousand, so over a thousand parts per million. And in that sort of scenario, I think really you would question about whether that quality of water is appropriate to use with a pesticide. So, so if you use that water against something that will say uh, rainfall, which probably is what yeah, less so, than hundred, that's yeah, probably so the, the best. So the rainwater samples come back at fifty to sixty parts mm-hmm. per million. Um, obviously, rainwater is a really beautiful supply of water. Yeah naturally soft it's not contaminated uh, if you compare that to some of these borehole samples that are over a thousand you can see the range of, of water quality all of which we're putting in the tank and trying to get to do the same job and it really does have a, a big effect and an impact on the efficiency of that of that product once you're at that sort of level mm. once you're at that kind of 500 to a thousand uh, the potential impact is there i think to some extent it's the gray area between about 250 and 500 that we need to focus on mm. because 500 ppm parts per million of calcium carbonate uh, and all cations i think there's an acceptance both by the, the manufacturers of formulated products um, and the industry in general that you're going to have danger of effects below that level there's a question mark you know where we need to know what do you do if your water is in that sort of zone um can you counteract the effects with a proprietary water conditioner or should you just be looking at rainwater harvesting to effectively dilute the problem away? And is there any product uh, that will deal with the, the water if it's up to that 1,000 level or, or not? Uh, I think there's a question mark about that that we need to work on. You can buy proprietary water conditioners and I would probably point to materials like Exchange and Aquascope and Exclude to Sangos products. There are other products out there that will do the same but they're probably the ones where we have most information which are collating agents which you can deploy effectively against water hardness. 
So Firebrand as such, that product Firebrand that is out there, which is obviously, I think, probably a lot cheaper than, than, than Exchange, that does not do the same thing. So Firebrand is an AMS, it's yes. an ammonium sulfate. Uh, and ammonium sulfate is, if you Google glyphosate and water hardness, you'll get ammonium sulfate results mm. because it's the predominant material used yeah. in the US. Uh, and ammonium sulfate is actually, it's only got a partial collating effect. The majority of its effect is actually to counter the alkalinity. Mm. And if, it is, as is the case with glyphosate and some other herbicides, to be honest, it's actually the hardness, the cations in solution, which are the issue rather than the alkalinity, than the pH. you should mm. be focusing on, on water conditions which have a collating effect. Mm. Uh, AMS is obviously potentially a lot cheaper, but as I say, it's predominantly affecting the pH of the solution and it's only got a partial effect on these cations in solution. That's John Cousins of Niab Tags speaking with Andrew Ward. On to the latest grain market news then, and before Kit, we've some positive news from Open Field. The cooperative has revealed it's back in profit with a £3.7 million turnaround in its results just published to the end of June 2018. It reported profits before tax of £0.4 million for the year to June the 30th, having seen a £3.3 million loss in 2017. Good news there. Enough about them, though. What about the markets? As promised, Kit Dickinson has the info you'll need. How are things, Kit? Uh, yes, very good. Thank you, Sean. Yes, uh, lo- looking looking forward to uh, some warmer weather in the spring. <laughs> we can hope. We can hope. <laughs> How's it? Uh, is uh, grain markets hot or cold this week? Uh, slightly colder this week, I have to say. Uh, this week, the wheat market has dropped off slightly, between 15 to 25p per day, uh, which has resulted in a futures drop of £1.10p on the week. This is really due to the strengthened pound based around the continuing volatility that Brexit is bringing to our market. There is still consumer demand behind the local homes around Lincolnshire and into Yorkshire, with the south of the county paying a couple of pounds less than the north and into South Yorkshire. Although prices have come back from the highs we saw in August and September last year, it is worth noting today's price of £170 x the farm for February and March. Comparing that to your five-year average of the same time frame, this will make today's price look very good. And depending on what percentage sold you might be, it could be time to progress your sales while these prices are still available. That's it for the wheat and moving on to OSR. We have seen a similar drop this week, but £320 is still achievable for May 19. There is still consumer demand further forward, but a lack of selling at the farm gate waiting for the prices to rise. As I have said before, the UK S&D is tight for old crop and new crop looks similar given the current acreage in the ground. Imports could affect our prices going forward dependent on the quality and the quantity that we bring in. Uh, on barley, in the main, consumers have cover until March and which time, hopefully, the weather will have improved and the stock will be out grazing instead of using farm-safe stocks or bought-in feed. This has resulted in the barley price dropping considerably as the consumers have cover going forward. All we need now is a wet spring or severe weather, which could bring the barley price back into demand. So that moves me on to prices this week. Uh, feed wheat is February 168 to 170. May 171 to 173. November 148 to 151. New crop. And milling premiums are still in the region of 14 to 16 pounds. Oil seed rate for February is 316 to 318. May 319 to 321, and new crop November 314 to 316. Uh, Barley February 150 to 152, May 154 to 156, 
and harvest 125 to 127 new crop. Malting premiums are between 25 and 30 pounds depending on nitrogens. For bean prices, please contact your open field farm business manager where a specific price will be given according to your sample result. Thank you, uh, Kit Dickinson from Open Field. So after a uh, cold end to January, it is going to be a slightly milder start to February. It should be later in the week anyway. The Farming Programme, five-day forecast. It is, though, still a cold start to your Sunday, and today, some early sunshine, but it will cloud over. We're looking at highs of around 4 Celsius, the wind from the southwest 10 to 15 miles an hour. That wind getting up as we head overnight tonight might bring a band of some heavy rain first thing tomorrow morning. Blowing from the south, 20, gusting at 40 miles an hour. That's keeping temperatures at around 3 Celsius overnight tonight. And then a sunny start to Monday, clouding over later. As I say, milder though, 6, 7, maybe even 8 Celsius come tomorrow afternoon. And the wind still from the southwest, 25 to 40 miles an hour. Monday into Tuesday, uh, clear skies at first, clouding over later. We're looking at lows maybe of around 2 to start Tuesday. The wind more from the west-southwest, 10 to 20 miles an hour. Then a rather overcast uh, Tuesday itself. Again, temperatures could be 8, maybe even 9 Celsius, with that wind blowing more from the south-southwest again at 15 miles an hour. A band of rain again through Wednesday by the looks of things. Could be quite a damp day, but we might get temperatures into double figures, 9 or 10 Celsius possible for the middle of the week. It's all dependent again on that wind continuing to blow from the south between 10 and 25 miles an hour. And then the latter end of the week, settling down a little bit, not as breezy, although where the wind is blowing, it's still from the south, so that is keeping temperatures at maybe 7 or 8. Overnight lows nearer 2 Celsius by the looks of things as we get towards the end of the week. And that's the forecast. Uh, well done to the Pink Pig Farm at home. They've beaten off uh, competition from right across the UK to be named Small Farm Park of the Year. Well done, celebrating farming success. Hopefully a successful Wednesday at Yams this week as well. Yams 2019 taking place at the York Auction Centre. Enjoy that if you're attending. Whatever you've got planned for this week, I hope it's a good one. We'll uh, chat again same time next Sunday. Take care.